Did you know that one of the names of Jesus is the Amen? In the book of the Revelation, the great Amen. And that word means so be it. So be it, Lord, as you intended. So be it, Lord, as you desire it. So be it, Lord, as you would. Amen. 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 Welcome to those of you in this room. And welcome to so many of you who are gathering with us in this streaming family all over the place. Continue to be grateful for the technology that has allowed us not to be uh, the church um, scattered in the sense that we can't get together, we can't meet. We, we are able to be together because of our streaming technology and just thanks to all of you who have been so faithful in, in supporting, praying, um, praying, but also giving as you've been able to. And bless you. I woke up this morning with news of, of another shooting and another disturbance in one of our southern cities, the city of Atlanta. And I, I want to ask you to join me in prayer, those of us here in this room, but also wherever you are this morning. Let's, let's, let's stop and let's pray. Let's pray for the United States of America. Lord, we, we need you. Lord Jesus, we need you. We, we don't need more religion. We, we don't need more speeches. We don't we don't need more uh, money thrown at things necessarily. We need you, Lord, by your Spirit to put out fires in hearts, to bathe us, Lord, with that river of living water that you promised. Father, we pray for churches and pastors and, and uh, church leaders, in particular in the troubled cities of our nation at this moment. They're there needs to be a word from the Lord spoken. Your, your people need to hear a word from the Lord. God, would you anoint pastors as they preach at this very hour? Would you anoint teachers as they teach? Would you, would you give to Christian brothers and sisters the ability to understand the times and know what Israel ought to do? Lord, we pray for your mercy to be poured out upon your nation. Lord, where there is, where there is wrong, where there have been wrongs, where there has been injustice, we ask you, Lord, to expose it and to correct it in the name of Jesus. You're the only one who can do that, Lord. You're the only one who knows the hearts of men and women, and you know how to fix what's broken in hearts, and that's what we ask you to do in our nation today. From, from Washington, D.C., all the way to the most simple levels of our political participation. Lord, cause there to be righteousness and justice and cause there to be kindness. And we ask that we would again be a people upon you whom you could crown us with your favor. We're asking you to, to as we said, sang the song and, and remember the words, God bless America. Lord, would you bless us with the things that we cannot give ourselves today? We, we can't change the hearts of people. We, we can't do enough of restoration and restitution to completely heal wounds of yesterday and even today. So, Lord, we're asking you as the one who heals broken hearts. We're asking you, Jesus, to heal broken hearts in our nation. Lord, we pray that you will raise up ones with, 
with fire in their hearts, the fire of God in their hearts, and the love of God in their hearts to be great, beaming beacons of light and hope in this day. Lord, we pray for our political leaders. They, they need help. They need your help. Uh, they don't just need to swap their own conclusions and, and look no farther than men. Lord, they need to hear from you, and we pray that you would grant each of our political leaders and our judges, uh, those, those who are involved in the process that we in many ways have been blessed by, it and by but in some ways have been, have been affected and hurt by. We ask you to speak to the leaders of the nation, Lord, in Jesus' name. Give them what they need. Give them what they need. And Lord, will you stir up your church to pray? Forgive us for we spend, where we spend our time blaming and, and, and accusing instead of praying. Lord, would you, would you let the cause there to be just the litany of names and faces that are seen on, our, on the screens of, of media in our day to be a prayer list for the church? Instead of being objects of disdain and objects of, of criticism, let what we see and what we hear be prayerless for us, that we would be found praying and seeking your face on their behalf, Lord. We ask you to have mercy upon this nation as you've done before. Send a great revival from the Atlantic to the Pacific, from the Canadian border to the Gulf. Pour out your spirit, Lord, upon the United States of America. Pour out your spirit, Lord, upon the United States of America. Pour out your spirit, Lord, on the United States of America. We, your people, pray. And would you show us in this hour, Lord, even this morning as we look into your word, show us where we as your people need to repent of our own sins. Lord, expose our hearts that freedom may come, we pray in Jesus' name. And all the Lord's people said, amen, amen, amen. I want you to walk with me this morning. It's, a, it's an invitation, but it's also a challenge. And, and I realize that as we step into some of the aspects of what we'll be talking about this morning, if we don't listen carefully and get the dots connected as the Word of God connects these dots, there can be some pretty serious misunderstanding. There can be some pretty serious questioning of what did the preacher say? What did he mean? So I'm going to ask you to get your Bible and by the work of the Spirit in us, open our hearts. Lord, would you, would you teach us from your word. I love that description of the tribe of Issachar at a strategic time in the life of God's people. It says that they understood the times and they knew what Israel ought to do. They understood the times and knew what Israel ought to do. And then that word regarding the shepherds of the Lord's people. Well, the Lord promised that the day would come when I will raise up shepherds after my own heart, and they will teach my people knowledge and understanding. May it be that in our time together this morning, there will be further knowledge, and there'll be further understanding, and there'll be a sense that this is coming from the Lord's heart. Amen. Find in your copy of Scripture, please, the Gospel of Luke. Luke, 
and chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. If you have that, would you say amen? Amen. That's most everybody in this room. So we'll, we'll give you just a second to find it. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Here's how this reads. And it was at this time that he, Jesus, went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Now, what did he spend the whole night praying about? Verse 13, and when day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles, Simon, whom he also called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and check out this name, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. With that spot noted, Luke chapter 6, verse 12 and following, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 3. There's another listing of the apostles named and another description of how Jesus landed on them. This is Mark chapter 3 and verse 13. And he went up to the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the 12. And the only addition to this list is when you look in verse 17, John the brother of James, it's James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means what? Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. He had a nickname for James and John. Now you look back up and you find what these 12 were going to be doing. The privileges, the empowerment that they were going to receive as apostles. The word apostle comes from a verb that means to send forth or to send out, to, to go as an ambassador of, to go as a representative of, but the emphasis on being sent out with a message, not just being sent out to do something in general, but being sent out to accomplish something, to deliver something in particular. He says that these 12 would be given the right, you look at verse 14, to be with him. They would be with him. They would have an open door into a relationship with Jesus personally. They weren't just faces in the crowd. These were ones that would be the closest to him physically. And then it says that he might send them out to preach. 
to preach, to preach, hang on to that thought, and to have authority to cast out the demons. The only problem that Jesus had was that he had just recruited, he had just named a band of racists. I expect it to be silent. I expect to see some mouths open. I expect to poke somebody to poke. What did he say? Jesus, after a night, a solid night of prayer, asking the Father, who do you pick? Who do you want me to select to be the closest to me physically? Who do you want me to pick who will preach your heart, who will preach the message? Who do you want me to pick who will be given the authority to cast out demons? And all 12 of them, from Peter all the way to Judas, all 12 of them, because of the culture in which they had been raised, were taught and bred and encouraged to be racists, meaning they had the, the perspective, they lived with the perspective that a certain group of people, just because they were a certain group of people, should be mistreated, should be mistrusted, should, um, should be avoided, should be, should be abused where it was appropriate to do so. And then the other part of that is, as a racist, you have the permission to assume that your race is superior to every other race. And you just say, Pastor, where in the world did you get such a statement like that? There is a term, there is a name, and associated with this name in the New Testament is a, is a nickname, is a, is a, is a jab, is a, a verbal term when the Jews spoke it against the, and here's the group, the Samaritans. Those who were Jews and those who were Samaritans understood the sound of the name and the intent of the name. The Jewish prejudice against the Samaritans and the Samaritans' president's preference prejudice against the Jews shot through the entire culture and temper of the New Testament, particularly for the Jewish Christians and the Jewish church. Who were these Samaritans that these 12 apostles had been taught to hate and to mistrust? Who were they? The Samaritans were a people group in the land of Israel, some of whom were Jews. Their blood had not been mixed with other races and in interbreeding. But some were, 
from other places and had interbred with the Jewish people. It went back to 722 B.C., 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. And in 722, the Assyrian kingdom, the Assyrian ruler, came against what was then called the northern kingdom. After Solomon's death, the kingdom divided into two parts, the northern kingdom, southern kingdom. The capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. The capital of the northern kingdom was a variety of different places, leading cities in the north. But what happened was this. Even though God sent prophets and called the northern kingdom to repentance, to return to the Lord, they refused. And they continued to go farther and farther away from the faith of their fathers until finally the Lord lifted the protection off of the northern kingdom and allowed the Assyrians, a dominant force, an empire with great influence in the known world at that time, to overrun Samaria, to conquer Samaria, to capture it. And as a result, the northern kingdom fell prey to anything the Assyrians wanted to do with their lives and their future. One of the things that the Assyrians would do in order to establish their control for generations to come, they planned, they hoped, was that they would take out of the group of people in the nations that they had conquered, they would take groups from their homeland and force them to a place to live in another nation where they had never been before. And then they would take a group of people from that nation or various nations and move them into the place that they had taken the group from. Move into their houses, live in their cities. And the sole purpose was to, was to keep a spirit of nationalism from rising up and the nation would try to be an independent nation again. They set this directly against the Jewish people, realizing that the Jewish people had a strong nationalism, but it was recorded in some document from one of the Assyrian kings that they forcefully moved 27,000 from the northern kingdom, moved them into other parts of the Assyrian empire, and brought in ones to take their place from foreign nations. As a result, the Samaritans came to be known as a mixed breed, half-breeds. They, they were thought of as, as less than, far less than equal to their Jewish brothers. On the Samaritan side, they believed, their conclusion was, and they would teach their children that we are, those of us who, who have abstained from involvement with, with the other nations that were brought in here to take over our land, we who have been kept pure, have kept our blood, we're the pure Jews. We're the pure, we're the pure race. 586, when, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the rest were taken to Babylon and the city was, was decimated and the, and, and the city was in ruins for the longest time and, and, and vacant and, and wild beasts were, were living in the environs of Jerusalem. At, at that point in time, this group of Samaritan Jews, the ones to the north, 
were intact. They, they hadn't been taken. So their argument was, we never left the land. We've been here all along. We are the true Jews. They also came to the conclusion that their copy of the Old Testament Scripture, the first, the Torah, their version of it was more authentic, was more original than that which the Jews were operating by in Jerusalem. Here, here's, here's how that, how that worked. Both Jewish and Samaritan religious leaders taught that it was wrong. This is how deep it went. Taught that it was wrong to have any contact wrong to have any contact with the opposite group. And neither was there to be any entering of the other group's territory by one of the other group. They were, they were to avoid contact. They were never to set foot in their land. And then beyond that, they were not even allowed to speak, to speak, to call the name of the other one. Josephus, the Roman historian who, who wrote during the first century AD, though he was a Roman, he, he was aware of many of the things happening that were tied to Christianity. And he wrote, he made this comment about, about the situation between the Jews and the Samaritans. His comment was that there were numerous violent confrontations between Jews and Samaritans in the first century A.D., during the time that Jesus walked the earth. Let me back up, and let's say this again. The culture in which Peter and James and John and even Levi the tax collector, Simon the zealot, others that would be named in that list of 12, the culture in which they grew up in was a culture that taught them to hate Samaritans. So deeply did the division go that on one occasion, armies, troops, a military force from Israel went and, and destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim that the Samaritans had built, believing that it was the right place to worship. They didn't even want, they didn't even believe that the Samaritans had a right to worship God, that it would be anywhere near a, a correlation of the one true and living God. They went to destroy their temple. That happened before Jesus came. That happened before he called the 12. But folks, listen. He stayed up all night wanting to get the Lord's heart, the Father's heart, for who were the ones to be the closest to him? And these names came out of heaven. Peter's name was called. James and John's name was called. Simon the Zealot's name was called. Jesus said, I don't do anything but that I hear my father say it. I won't do anything but that I see the father do it. Here's the point. Here's the point. As ancient as your Bible as relevant as, as the teachings of the New Testament Scripture is this fact, is this truth. Jesus called racists to be a part of the band that he would in time use to change the world. He, 
the, the, the term, again, racist meaning the conclusion, I have a right to disdain another culture or another race. And I am superior to those others. Jesus loved them as racists, and he loved them through their racism. That's the point. If Jesus, there wasn't one of these that he called who had said, Jesus, forgive me for hating Samaritans. Jesus, I'll come and follow you, but you're going to have to get this out of me, this disdain, this just automatic knee-jerk spot where when a Samaritan's name come up, there is distrust and anger, and I don't even know why, they've, why they're alive, and I don't even know if they have a soul. God, you're going to have to get that out of me. Here's what he did. Here's what he did. And this is good news for all of us who have, it may not be, it may not be a skin color necessarily, but it may be. It may not be that, but it may be that you're in the position where you grew up thinking, if I'm educated, that I'm just a little better than the ones who aren't educated. Or the ones who aren't educated thinking, I just can't really trust those people that think they're so smart. Or... If you grew up having money, if you grew up not ever having to worry about how you were going to eat or what you were going to drive or how you were going to dress, and you just have a, had a natural kind of a something that was built inside you to look down on ones who don't have as much as you have. And then that group that doesn't have, looking with distrust on the ones who do have. On and on and on and on we can go. The point this morning is, yes, we need to pray for Atlanta. Yes, we need to pray for Minneapolis. But yes, we need to pray and let the Spirit of the Lord open our hearts in San Antonio, Texas, U.S. of A. As to what there may be lurking within us that would seem to give us the right to look down on another person of type, color, nationality, whatever it would be, and that somehow we're just a little better than they are. Lord Jesus Christ, expose it. Expose it and correct us. So how did Jesus change them? They were going to need to be, they were, he picked them. They were going to be the ones who were going to preach his gospel. Jesus had a problem. Jesus had a problem. How are you going to turn a racist loose to preach your gospel when you came to die for the sins of the whole world and you got a group in your closest group who won't even call the name of a Samaritan, let alone go with mercy, let alone go with kindness? Let me tell you, here's what he did. Here's, here's, how, here's how he ransacked racism in the hearts of his own men and implemented something different that they had never known before. Here's what he did. He called them unto himself, and then he showed them a better way. He called them unto himself, and he showed them a better way. Scholars studying the rabbinic tradition in that first century and in those, those times within the Jewish culture made it very clear that rabbis or teachers would gather around themselves 
people who, after hearing the rabbi teach, would agree with the rabbi. And so if they followed a particular rabbi, that meant that they followed a particular interpretation or or a particular pursuit or goal or philosophy of some sort. But it was about following what the teacher was teaching. Jesus never put it that way with his men. He didn't say, you come and follow my teaching first. He says, you come and follow me. You come and follow me. So Levi, Matthew, the tax gatherer, you follow me. You you follow me, and what will happen as you follow me is you will be distancing yourself from the wrong things the dishonest things, the cheating things that your life before you started following me represented. Follow me. Peter and Andrew and James and John, follow me. Follow me. You've been fishing for fish, but if you follow me, you're going to be fishing for men. And there was something about that, that option, that alternative, that possibility that captured their hearts. You follow me. Old Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. We don't know anything about him except his name. Simon the Zealot. Now here's here's some of the background, possible background for his name. You talk about a crew that Jesus... Now let you back up just a minute. You You got Peter... James and John and Andrew, fishermen, who are engaged in a commercial enterprise. But they got a local tax gatherer who's as crooked as a dog's hind leg. And now this double first cousin of their tax gatherer locally is sitting across from them in a campfire, and they're trying to talk about, can you pass me the fish or something? Whatever. Let's just, let's just give him the bones. Let's eat the well, they're going to have just scraps and just give out, oh, sorry, tax gatherer. They left behind business as the sole pursuit. They were challenged to walk away from their disgust with a tax gatherer, with their focus on Jesus, because the same Jesus that called a fisherman called a tax gatherer to follow him. Still broken. Still inadequate, still not fully formed to be an effective preacher of the gospel of Jesus, but Jesus picked them anyway. Jesus picked them anyway. And he got that idea from heaven in that all night of prayer. Simon the Zealot, he, he was, generally speaking, his history has him associated with, with a group that emerged in 6 AD from the, the, the Romans' uh, abuse of a census. Um, and and the, the, it's believed that the Jewish freedom movement began as, a, as an outcry, response to that particular thing. It morphed into the name, the Zealots. The Zealots. They were Jewish men. They, they were Jewish freedom fighters. Their theological perspective was, we're praying for, for a Messiah to come who will violently overthrow the Romans from our land. They were about violence. 
They were about, about despising, even hating the Roman soldiers that were around them. But Jesus, instead of saying, you jettison anything that is connected with that name and then you can fo come follow me, Jesus called him as Simon the Zealot. He was involved more than likely in a political military movement to try to throw out the Romans. Follow me and I will show you a better way. Find Matthew chapter 5, Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Now Jesus is speaking, but in the group that he's speaking to have to be the 12. And within the 12... There is Simon the Zealot, who anything about the Romans, he disgusted, he despised. He felt that they were justified in using violence and war to rid the nation of this, this imposing army. But let's look at what Jesus says, 538. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile... Go with him too. That was a specific reference to the law of the land in those days that the Romans could not require Jewish men to carry their equipment, their baggage, their weapons any further than a mile. They could require them to carry something for a mile. But that was to be the end of it. Here, Jesus and Simon the Zealot is sitting there. You, Simon the Zealot heard it. He, he, he's called to follow Jesus, and then here Jesus is describing something that must have sounded like emotionally a foreign language to the man. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unjust unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? Jesus might have glanced over at Levi. Don't even the tax gatherers do the same thing? And Levi bobbing his bearded head, yes, sir, they sure do. They'll even be nice. They'll even be kind. 
to one who has been kind to them. Verse 47, and if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But perfect meaning complete, meaning marked by integrity, meaning not, not moved from one side to the other based upon the pressing of the moment. But, but you, you be you be mature, you be complete, you be perfect in that, in that sense. That's the goal. Jesus offered another bullseye to shoot at. Instead of it being what your family has said, what your culture has taught you, what seems to be accepted far and wide among your people, lose them as your goal and set as your target your father. He causes it to rain on somebody's land that cusses his name just as he causes it to rain on somebody who blesses his name. So if you're only going to pick out the ones that you're going to be kind to and you're going to bless as being the ones who would be favorable to your position, then you're no different than anybody else on the earth who dances with the one they're with. But you've been called to something higher. You've been called to someone higher. You've been called to be like your father. He taught them a better way and believing that his word would bear fruit in their lives. He would entrust into these racists who would be by his power transformed and given a new way of looking, he transferred into them the entire future enterprise of the gospel of his message. That if it didn't get past this group, it would go no further. He was banking the future of the gospel on the fact that racists could be changed. Now, don't be sitting there saying, well, I'm not in Atlanta. I don't have a racist bone in my body. Don't bite your tongue. Bite your tongue. San Antonio, the Hispanic Latino population is 64% in this city, last official count. Whites, 24.8%. Black African Americans, 6.2%. Atlanta, 51.85% black, 40.2% white. Hispanics in Atlanta are less than 1%. So we can sit here in our little ivory palace with our feet propped up, drinking our iced tea and watching what's going on around the country unfold before us, and we can just say, well, I hope Atlanta gets it right. And oh, I hope to goodness that they'll figure it out in Minneapolis. When the things that operate in San Antonio, where somehow we can feel that we are justified and have permission to look down on, regardless of where the perspective begins, and we fail to realize that in all of those justifications of why we're better, 
or why we shouldn't have a reason to act with dignity and respect and fairness and offer advantage that somehow justified it is missing, folks, the whole point of what is going on in our nation right now. It's not for us to sit a thousand miles away and say to somebody who's struggling with a particular ethnic battle as if, well, I don't have that problem and my problem isn't as severe as yours. You guys just figured it out and I don't really have anything to deal with. I've heard stories and there would be ones that could rise up and say, I'm a part of an Anglo-Hispanic marriage. We went through hell and we still go through stuff over that racial diversity in a marriage. Now, I, I realize that, that some of this isn't real pleasant to, to hear, but it's necessary to hear it. That instead of saying all the wrong is someplace else, where it's just black versus white, there are issues of that kind in our city for certain but there can be other issues having to do with other ethnicities that can be every bit as divisive and wrong in our city. And as the church of Jesus Christ, our position needs to be, what would Jesus do? Not what was daddy think, mama think, some preacher back yonder think, some situation that informed this license to harbor resentment and to somehow have permission to look down on another group. Jesus would say that attitude comes straight from the deceiver, the liar, Satan himself. Here's the name, here's the meaning of the name devil. The definition of the name devil, diabolos, one who throws between. One who divides. Where there is division, and the division comes from perspectives that are not anywhere pleasing in the sight of the Lord, Satan is the driver because he works to divide. What, what then is our position with regard to Jesus and his calling of us? Jesus came that he might overthrow, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came, for us to be found in that place. All right, let me give you, I want you to find John chapter 4, the gospel of John chapter 4. John chapter 4. About if, uh, please get your Bible and, and, and look at this. I mean, Jesus was gentle. And Jesus was kind, and Jesus cared about people, but he could take some steps that would blow your hat in the creek. And this is one of them. John chapter 4, verse 3, Jesus left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. Well, the culture of the day was you, you, you're not supposed to set foot in the territory of Samaria. You walk around it, even if it was many miles in addition to your normal travel. Straight shot, 
from where they needed to go from Galilee up to Jerusalem, it, it, it would have been a few miles. But to walk all the way around Samaria, which a good upstanding Jew with his racism uh, Im embedded in culture, he would walk around it. But when it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, why did he have to pass through Samaria? Because it was what his father wanted him to do to pass through Samaria. And it violated the cultural norms and mores of the day. He had to pass through Samaria. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. Then came, or there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? And then John gives us this parenthesis, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Some way there was something in the dress of Jesus that would have identified him as a Jewish man, probably a Jewish teacher. Something about the robe that he wore, or the prayer shawl that he had. Some way she picked up on that and wanted to know why he as a Jewish man would even speak to her. Or notice the things Jesus busted wide open, blew him to smithereens. He wasn't supposed to go into, into Samaritan territory. He had to go to Samaritan territory. He wasn't supposed to ever speak to a Samaritan. He speaks to the woman, give me a drink. And then the further part of that is she was a woman. Far away on down the list of ones that should be respected and should be honored were women in those days, more, more used than honored. But here Jesus a single man, middle of the day, a woman comes with an extremely jaded past. And instead of running from her, turning away from her, he engages her in one of the most powerful conversations ever recorded in Scripture about life in the Spirit of God in a person. Rivers of living water. You come here because you're thirsty. If you knew the one you were talking to, he goes on to say, I'm summarizing, you, you would have asked, and I would have given you rivers of living water so that you'd never have to thirst in that way, the thirst of your soul again. She says, I perceive you are a prophet. What, what, and then she begins to talk about the things that where, where they worshipped, where the Samaritans worshipped, and where the Jews worshipped, and our fathers say this, your fathers say that. Jesus comes back to say, there's a day coming when it's not going to be in a building. It's not going to be in a place where worship for the Father takes place because he is spirit, and those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. These are the ones that the Father desires to be his worshippers. He unloads that awesome, that massive round of teaching of the heart of God and what the life in the Spirit is going to be and what worship is all about. He unloads it on a woman who had five husbands he knew 
And the man she was living with at that point in time wasn't even her husband. And still, still, he took the time to be with her, to speak to her. All of a sudden, look at verse 27. At this point, his disciples came. And they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman, a woman in Samaria. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. And in the meanwhile, the disciples were requesting him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. The disciples, therefore, were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Follow me, and I'll show you a better way. Follow me, and I'll show you what it is to have something that will so deeply satisfy your soul and spirit that you won't even be thinking about physical nourishment because this enrichment is so great. What is that? It's to do the will of the Father. What was the will of the Father? It was to be face-to-face with that woman of a jaded reputation in the middle of the day in Samaria, even though the whole Jewish world was saying, what are you doing? Get out of Samaria. You don't even have a right to talk to her. Jesus just blew it away. He just marched right through it. Follow me, he says to his men, and I'll show you a better way. There comes a time in the life of a child of God, and the times when they come, they're not often fully appreciated. It can be very uncomfortable. But where you have to look back on how you've been taught, what has been exampled before you, and realize it was incomplete at best and dead wrong at worst. And you have to make a choice between following family, following religion, following the culture, or following Jesus. Staying where you are furthers your bondage. Following Jesus will set you free. These men men had never known. They'd never known what a life would be without the bondage of hating a Samaritan. They didn't know it was a bondage. But what if in God's plan for them, as would be seen in the book of Acts, that was a place where God would use them to bless and set free and bring salvation and hope to people that they had been taught to hate. They had been given permission. It worked on both sides. Understand, the Samaritan woman had been trained to hate and with suspicion deal with Jews. It worked both ways. But Jesus came to show a better way. To show a better way. Now I want you to find Luke chapter 10, please. Luke chapter 10. Verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? 
How does it read to you? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him, went off leaving him half dead. Isn't that something to think that Jesus knows about people who are beaten and who are left half dead? Jesus walked this earth for 33 years. He knew. He understood. He had a grasp of the human experience. And he's making this story up to teach the lawyer something. Verse 31, and by chance, Jesus continues, a certain priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, a man of priestly descent. A Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii, two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend when I return, I'll repay you. Then Jesus looked into the eyes of the lawyer and said, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to him who fell into the robber's hands? The testimony to the depth of the systemic Racism in Jesus' day. Listen to the words the lawyer used. And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. The lawyer would not even use the word Samaritan. Because he had been taught, they're not worthy even of a name. They're not worthy even of the respect of a name, of their culture. He wouldn't even use the name. It was the Samaritan. I'm going to submit to you as well that, that this struggle with Built-in racism 
within the disciples didn't give up easily. Luke chapter 9, just a page over, verse 51. It came about when the days were approaching for his ascension that Jesus resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they, the Samaritans, did not receive him because he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Samaritans. But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. It's one more example of how ingrained the knee-jerk reaction can be. They deserve punishment. They deserve judgment. And Jesus, to the sons of thunder, says, you don't even understand the kind of spirit that's operating inside you. I didn't come to destroy men's lives. I came to save them. Now, folks, I'm going to stop here. But I would encourage you to press on into the book of Acts a little bit further and reread some of the passages when the Spirit was poured out upon the church and Jesus said, and you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The Spirit of Jesus will not keep racism alive inside you. The Spirit of Jesus will not be that which is fomenting bigotry and antagonistic hatred toward ones who are different. The Spirit of Jesus will be the energy sending you to those places and into those lives and friendships and relationships that would never have happened in the prison house of racism and bigotry now can begin to break forth. I think back sometimes about those two days that, the, that Jesus and the disciples spent in Samaria after the, he, he talked to the woman at the well. They, they wanted him, the, the Samaritans wanted him to stay, and he stayed with them for two days. Well, he wasn't just staying by himself for two days. All of the 12 who were with him, they were staying there too. They, they, were, they were eating off of Samaritan's plates. They were drinking out of Samaritan's glasses. They were putting a Samaritan spoon and fork in their mouth. They were laying their heads on a Samaritan's bed or in a Samaritan's backyard, and they were seeing more Samaritans in those two days than some of them had probably ever seen in their whole lives. Follow me 
and I will show you, I, Jesus, will show you a better way. Oh, Lord, in America, in San Antonio, show us the better way. Show us the better way. Oh, Lord, that's our cry. That's our prayer. That's our longing. That's our trust in you that you will strengthen, you will pull tighter, you will pull us closer to you, that we may follow you, follow you with each step. And then, Lord, that our ears will be open and our hearts will be ready, ready. It's yes automatically as you show us a better way. In the name of Jesus, will you speak his name one more time with me? the name Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, may it be. If you've never opened your heart up to him to receive him as your Savior and Lord, today is the best day. This is the right moment. Behold, I stand at the door and knock of a heart, doorknobs on the inside. If any man or woman will open that door, I will come in and stay with him. There's all the difference in the world in knowing about Jesus, reading about Jesus out there, and reading about these things that he did. There's a big, massive, huge difference between knowing those things out there and sensing he's alive in here. Then the doing of the things that we saw him do become possibilities, not impossibilities, because he's changing us. He's the changer. Jesus is the heart changer. Amen. Amen. Bless you all for being here and being a part of our family today. May we hear him saying, follow me, and I will show you, I will show you a better way. Amen. I'm so tempted to say those of you who are here, I just can't say it. Stand up and grab somebody by the neck and hug the fire. I can't say that. I look forward to the day. That's Alamo City. That's our family. We just love being together. Bless you for being here and being with us today. Amen.